Hey guys, just a quick note, just, you know, some housekeeping before I get started this week. Um, I was looking through my tales to cover and I still have over 500 after doing this for over a year. That is 10 years worth of stories if I keep releasing them once a week like this. So, uh, you know, that's, that's a lot of stories left to, to go over. And unfortunately, most of these stories are, like my nephew, little shorties. So I thought for a few weeks, maybe a few months, depending on how long and how many we have, um, as I go through some of these, what I call the little shorties, I may release the episodes as shorts. These are mostly stories that I think are going to take less than 10 minutes to cover and ones that I don't really have like a movie made of them or anything like that. Usually they're more unfamiliar stories and the older a fairy story is, the shorter it tends to be. So these are very old, very obscure fairy tales that I think will take probably five to 10 minutes to cover completely. So I plan on releasing them as shorts. These will be just a few minutes long, so I will probably be releasing them a little more frequently than our one episode a week that we have been doing. So if you notice me kind of churning out some of these stories at a quicker rate, it's because they are shorter. So rather than a, you know, um, like one 45, 50 minute episode a week, I will probably do like a couple five to 10 minute episodes a week, just so that you're still getting about the same amount of content, but that we start going through some of these shorter stories a little faster, just because I would feel bad if instead of dropping a 45 minute episode for you one Friday, I dropped like a five minute episode. And I'm like, here, this is what you get for the week. Hooray. So to try and keep it a similar amount of t content and to try and get through some of these shorter stories a little more quickly, I'll probably just be releasing the shortest of them with more rapid succession. How long I'm going to do this again, I'm not sure. Depends on how, um, how many I get through and at what rate and what the kind of tolerance you guys have for that. But, um, I did stumble across more of the colored fairy books by Andrew Lang. And again, most of those stories are pretty short, pretty to the point, very old, very obscure and very fun. I do think they are important enough that they are worth covering. I don't want to just skip them because they're short. These stories are kind of the foundation of not only our culture, but cultures around the world and the things that connect us. So I think these stories are too you know, important to just disregard completely and, and stick with the main ones like Cinderella, Snow White, you know, the biggies. But, um, you know, they're, they're not... 45 minutes worth of content. So I'm still going to cover them just briefly. And uh, trust me, if I wanted to stretch this out, I really could. There's like Cinderella stories from every county, from every nation, from every corner of the globe. If I really wanted to stretch out this podcast, I can. And I'll probably get into some interpretations of Cinderella, Snow White, etc. But um, again, I, th I think I'm going to just try and cover these shorts as shorts are meant to be covered, you know, like before or after the main show, um, I'll probably release these just as almost, probably not quite daily, but almost daily, just so that we can get through some of these important cultural stories that aren't really long. And 
you know, before it sounds like I'm getting lazy here, just remember that as I'm reading these or listening to them, some of them, the actual fairy tale is only about a page and a half of print. So it does get very hard to stretch that into a 30 plus minute segment. So I just thought this would be the easiest way to get these stories out there and uh, get them more recognition without stretching them beyond what the content allows because nobody wants an episode that's just a bunch of filler and that that ends up stretching into a lot of interpretation um without further ado i have a few local stories for you today since i haven't done anything like that in a while um pretty excited about it it's always fun when you live in an older part of the country to try and bring some of the local folklore into a folklore podcast that just makes it all the more interesting, all the more relatable. The first story I'm going to tell you today is the story of Julia Laguerre. Julia and her husband, John, were cotton farmers. And uh, like most cotton farmers, they split their time, their year in between, sometimes spent in Charleston and sometimes spent in the surrounding islands. So this was pretty typical of plantation owners, especially. I don't know that the Laguerres had a plantation, but they were cotton farmers, so it's, it's it's pretty likely down here in the South, you know, that they had a big plantation. Now, when you visit a plantation, you may notice that the houses there, while they are a big, showy, fancy-looking house, they're not like you picture, like the Biltmore Estate, where it's almost a castle, you know, or Terra in Gone with the Wind. These aren't the kind of mansions that you're kind of picturing in your head. And a lot of the reason for that is because often the people who actually lived in the houses on these plantations, on these estates, were actually the managers of the estate and not the family themselves. If you look at one of the plantations near me, um, Magnolia Plantation, the family that owns it actually lives in a big estate that looks like Downton Abbey in England. But the house on the estate is actually not that much bigger than your average middle-class two-story house. It's it's a pretty small house that ha does have exceptionally thick walls because it is a very old house, but they're really not as large as you build them up to be in your brain. And a lot of that is because the house was not the house where the family typically resided. It was the, the manager of the estate. The reason for this was that these upper class families usually had no idea how to farm. Farming is a lot more complicated than people who have never done it assume that it is. So they would hire these managers to live on the estate and they would split their time between Charleston and the islands. They usually hang out in the islands when it was a little cooler and when mosquitoes basically weren't in season. A lot of mosquito-borne illnesses they called the miasma back then because they had no idea where these illnesses were coming. And so when the miasma was in season, they would go inland further to Charleston or Somerville. And then when the mosquitoes were less prevalent and therefore the quote unquote miasma was not in season, um, then they would head back to the more damp swampy areas where they would oversee their farm or, you know, just in, you know indulge in some seafood that likes to live in the swampy areas. Those of you who are Final Fantasy fans are hearing the word miasma and just kind of geeking out a little bit. I was too. I'm like, well, people actually thought that was a thing. Yeah, it turns out it was actually just mosquito-borne illness, but they genuinely thought that these were seasons. If you've read like the old Laura Ingalls Wilder book, a lot of people like to blame the night air because again, when it's cooler and more damp, 
a lot of mosquitoes and other insects that, <clears throat> excuse me, that pass illnesses um, would come out. But a lot of people thought that it was just the night air or the miasma that spread this disease. Um, this is kind of back before we really had a good handle on germ theory. So anyway, all of that to say that it was pretty typical of people like the Laguerres to spend some time in Charleston and some time in the islands. One year while they were visiting Edisto Island, Julia fell very, very ill. We think these days possibly with diphtheria, but we're not sure. And, you know, you can't go back and diagnose because this was over 100 years ago. So, you know, we can't know for certain, but we think it was probably based on her symptoms and what was common at the time, probably diphtheria. And she fell into a coma that was so deep that the family doctor could detect neither a breath nor a heartbeat. Since she was believed to be dead and pronounced dead, Julia was placed into the family mausoleum on Edisto Island around 1852. Again, the dates are hard to get specific. Every source I said just said around 1852. I couldn't get like a like a specific, which seems weird with a grave, but um, rather than having her own specifically marked grave with a beginning and end date like we're used to today, especially where I'm from up north, these families where the ground was below sea level would have a mausoleum, which if you're younger and don't know what that is, it's basically like a tiny little building where they would put the remains of the whole family. And so then once your remains had largely decomposed, they just kind of scooty scooch you over and put the next unfortunate family member in there. Because once you're a skeleton, you don't really take up that much space. It's pretty economical for a place where you really couldn't dig what we think of as a traditional grave. But because of this, Julia didn't have like a individual grave marker. She was buried in the family crypt. So our best number is, and I quote, around 1852. However, years later, when another family member had passed away and they needed to put them in the family mausoleum, they opened the door to find Julia not laid to rest on the individual kind of stone beds that are in, often inside these mausoleums. She was pressed up against the door. There were scratch marks in the stone on the inside of the door, and she had clearly awakened from her coma while she had been locked inside the mausoleum and tried desperately to escape. Unfortunately, she had then eventually passed away, probably due to starvation, inside the mausoleum and was still in her desperate attempt pressed up against the door trying to get out um so you know imagine the horror of awakening from your coma only to find that you've been buried alive talk about a out of the frying pan into the fire situation so from that day on the door to the crypt would never stay sealed Family members would close the door only to find it open again later. Eventually, the door was removed completely to appease Julia's spirit and show her that no one would ever again be buried alive in the family mausoleum. So if you've ever seen, like I know you see these a lot in older cities like New Orleans, if you've ever seen a bell near an old grave of someone who feared being buried alive. Just keep in mind that while this seems kind of silly and quirky and superstitious these days, back in the 1800s and earlier, this was a very real fear 
for a very legitimate reason. This actually happened to people, which is part of why you see the people who have bells that are tied to them that then hang outside of their grave so that if they do wake up, they can ring the bell and somebody can dig them up before they suffocate. This was something that people feared for a legitimate reason. They didn't have, you know, quite the ability to track a person's vitals that we have today. They couldn't just slide a blood pressure cuff on you and say, hey, your blood pressure is zero. They just had to go by the signs and symptoms. And unfortunately for people like Julia Laguerre, that meant being buried alive. So it's just, it's really alarming how recently you can find graves that have bells hanging from them for those who may have tried, you know, to not be buried alive too. But while it seems like kind of a quirky, funny thing. It uh, is something that actually happens to people. And that's the story of one lady that it happened to here in Charleston with the interesting Southern flavor part being, of course, the fact that she haunted the mausoleum from then on. And uh, there remains no door on it to this day. There are a couple, I think, wooden planks across it is what I read, but they, to this day, cannot seal that particular mausoleum on Edisto Island, which is just a few miles from here. So be whatever it is, whether just the ground shifted and they could no longer fit the door properly for it to seal, or whether it's actually haunted. Um, people write letters to Julia Laguerre and things like that because people are so convinced that this particular mausoleum is haunted by this woman who was sealed in alive. The next story also talks of a young couple once in Charleston, a young sailor met and fell in love with a beautiful girl, as young men do. Unfortunately, the girl's family, um, who is, you know, upper class, does not approve. Charleston is a city that does have um, a lot of kind of upper wealthier class people here, but then a lot of people who are more middle class too. And the separation between the economic class of these two young people was an issue for the young lady's family. They didn't approve of the couple's union, and so the couple often met at a local cemetery until eventually the time where the sailor was stationed in Charleston was up. While he was away, his sweetheart passed away due to yellow fever, and her father refused to allow the young man to come to the funeral. Unsure where she was buried, the young man kept a vigil at the cemetery where he and his precious Annabelle Lee used to meet. In 1827, a young man heard this story during his time in the army stationed at Charleston. It is thought that this story inspired him when his own wife passed away and became the famous poem, Annabelle Lee by Edgar Allan Poe, which I will read for you now. Oops, unless it flips on my screen here. There we go. It was many and many a year ago in a kingdom by the sea that a maiden there lived, whom you may know by the name of Annabel Lee. And this maiden she lived with no other thought than to love and be loved by me. I was a child and she was a child in this kingdom by the sea, but we loved with a love that was more than love, I and my Annabel Lee. With a love that the winged seraphs of heaven coveted her and me. And this was the reason that long ago in this kingdom by the sea, a wind blew out of a cloud, chilling my beautiful Annabel Lee, so that her high-born kinsman came and bore her away from me, 
to shut her up in a sepulchre in this kingdom by the sea. The angels not half so happy in heaven when envying her and me. Yes, that was the reason, as all men know in this kingdom by the sea, that the wind came out of the cloud by night, chilling and killing my Annabel Lee. But our love it was stronger by far than the love of those who were older than we, of many far wiser than we, and neither the angels in heaven above nor the demons down under the sea can ever dissever my soul from the soul of the beautiful Annabelle Lee. For the moon never beams without bringing me dreams of the beautiful Annabelle Lee, and the stars never rise but I feel the bright eyes of the beautiful Annabelle Lee. And so, all the night-tide, I lay down by the side of my darling, my darling, my life and my bride, in her sepulchre there by the sea, in her tomb by the sounding sea. So Edgar Allan Poe never truly revealed who his inspiration for Annabelle Lee was, but it is thought partially to be his wife, Virginia, especially since the poem obviously does specifically mention the line about my bride, but it is also thought to be inspired by this kind of story, this legend that was supposed to have happened here in Charleston about the young couple that was kept apart and the young lady who was buried without the young man being allowed to even know where she had been entombed. And so it is thought because Edgar Allan Poe did spend some time here in the army that perhaps he heard this story and that um, with the loss of his own wife was inspired to write the poem, which makes sense. You don't meet too many people by the name of Annabelle Lee. Maybe it was more common back in his day. I really kind of doubt it, but uh, I'm sure Annabelle was more common, but specifically Annabelle Lee, it, I don't know, it just seems kind of niche. So I'm, I'm going to guess to like the historian that whose article I read that he kind of heard this story and upon the loss of his own wife, um, it just kind of inspired him to go ahead and write this particular interpretation of it, which is one of my favorite poems. It's, it's a little spooky, but it's mostly just sad, kind of like Edgar Allan Poe himself. And uh, I don't know, I had no idea that it might have been inspired by this area when I moved here, and I just, I find that absolutely fascinating. I hope that you enjoyed it as much as I did, and I can't wait to talk to you again with some of our fun fairy tale shorts that I'll have coming out later this week. Have a wonderful day. Hey everyone, welcome back for another little shorty. This one might go a little longer because it's a fairy tale that I'm not as familiar with, so I don't like to cruise through them so quickly when I think that some of you may not have heard this one. It is a little more modern, so some of you may be really familiar with it, but uh, it's called The New Mother, and I had fun getting into this one. <laughs> it's a little spooky, and you may have noticed that's kind of how my favorite stories roll. And this one is, it's creepy. I hope, I hope you'll like it. The story starts with two little girls who have real names, but they prefer their nicknames, which were Blue Eyes and Turkey. They lived in a house near the woods with their mother and their baby sister. They were very, very good girls, and the little family was really happy. One day, as the girls were walking to town, they ran into a little gypsy girl with a guitar. She played so beautifully that they believed it must be magic. The girl told Blue Eyes and Turkey that the reason the guitar sounded so nice was that behind the ornately decorated door 
in the instrument's body, a tiny man and tiny woman also played along. Naturally, Blue Eyes and Turkey, who have grown up hearing fairy tales just like I did, are super excited about the idea that magic could exist. So they long to see the tiny people inside the gypsy girl's guitar. But she says that she'll only show them the tiny people if they're very, very naughty. That the tiny people would only tolerate being shown to naughty children. So when Blue Eyes and Turkey went home, they backsassed their mother, refused to do their chores, and stayed up past bedtime. But the next day, the gypsy girl said that that was not nearly naughty enough, and they weren't allowed to see the tiny man or tiny lady. The next day, the girls repeated these sins, but also fought viciously with each other, made their rooms messy, and woke the baby with their loud screaming and stomping. Their mother was shocked. It wasn't like her sweet girls to be so unladylike. She warned them that if they didn't shape up, she and the baby would leave to go join their father who sailed across the world, and they would get a quote-unquote new mother with glass eyes and a wooden tail. The girls hesitated. This sounded ominous, but and they had never seen their mother cry before. Their mother said that new mother was very strict and very mean, but they wanted so much to see the tiny man and tiny lady, and they didn't believe their kindly mother would ever really leave them. This was their one chance in their whole life to see real magic. So they carried on. The next day, the gypsy girl told the girls that they had still not been naughty enough, and she warned them that she and the other visitors would be hitting the road tomorrow, so if they wanted to see the tiny people, they needed to be extra naughty by then. That night, the girls rampaged. They crushed the china. They slapped each other and the baby, striking at mother, who followed them, begging for her sweet girls back. They kept it up all night, and the next day, they snuck out of the house and ran to see the gypsy girl. The girl smirked as she packed her things and told them that they would never be bad enough to see the little people, that you couldn't be sort of good or sort of bad. You either were bad or you were not, and that it didn't happen by degrees. And with that, she and the gypsies vanished without a trace, leaving the girls to new mother. When they got home, the house was completely empty. They checked every corner for mother and the baby, but they were nowhere to be found. Soon there came a knock at the door. Outside stood a shrouded figure with glass eyes glistening from beneath its hood. A wooden tail clunked against the porch, and a sneering old voice asked if there were any brats inside who needed a stricter new mother. From now on, there would be no a price to pay for naughty girls. The lock flicked open and the doorknob began to turn on its own. The girls shrieked and ran out the back door and hid in the woods where they lived off bark and berries in the cold wood for the rest of their muddy life. Their real mother never returned and the house belonged to new mother now. The message of this one's obvious. It's, you know, just kind of your classic boogeyman story trying to scare kids straight into being good. This story was written by British author Lucy Lane Clifford, who disturbingly said that this was based somewhat on her own childhood. Now, it is recorded her mother never did actually abandon her and her siblings, so I'm not sure how much of this is based on her actual childhood and how much of it is artistic storytelling, 
but it's also said that she used this story to kind of spook her kids to keep them in line as well. Boogeyman stories are kind of a classic storytelling style all over the world. And it's basically any story where you tell the story of a terrifying monster in order to keep your kids well behaved. Otherwise that monster will get you. We see this with La Llorona in Mexican culture and with the actual boogeyman in Europe. So these are different stories from all over the world. Baba Yaga kind of has some boogeyman elements to her as well. And it was just kind of interesting to have this more modern version of yet another thousands of year old storytelling device of the boogeyman. Be a good little boy or a good little girl or this monster of unknown origin will come and get you.